Hello and welcome to the St. Eminence podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm delighted to introduce Claire Richmond and a recording of her talk, her keynote talk, at the St. Eminence Live conference back in 2018 here in Manchester. Now you probably know Claire. Claire's an incredible clinician, a wonderful presenter, a great friend and is hugely respected as a clinician around the world. She works at Sydney Hems. She's also spoken at SMAC and many other conferences as a keynote speaker. And we were really honoured to get her here in Manchester to talk to us about the journey, the journey for our patients, ourselves, our organisations, and how we all strive to continuously improve and get better at what we do. And if you want a good example of why that matters and how good you can be, well, Claire is it. So, you can see more of this on the St. Emeline's blog. So we've got the video up there on the blog. You can have a look at that. But you can listen to the podcast here as well. And by all means, put your comments, spread it around on Twitter. I think it's one of those presentations that needs to be shared widely. So enough of me. Over to Claire. Have a great listen. Have a great time. We'll see you soon. Hi, so I thought I'd talk to you this afternoon about the journey that matters. So I'm a retrieval physician. I work also as an emergency physician in one of our local hospitals. And I'm going to tell you that the journey to get here to talk to you today was just a little short one. I think it was a it was one short flight of four hours and then a little bit of time at the airport, followed by a 17-hour flight. Not long in a tin can. Actually, it was 17 hours and 20 minutes, the third longest flight in the world, um, followed by a short train ride from London up to here. So the journey there doesn't matter at all. The, what actually matters is us standing today and having a conversation about the things that are important for us when we care for patients on what is their worst day of their lives when they meet me. It is. It's the worst day of their lives. Yeah. Best day for you guys, worst day for them. Um, well, I work at Sydney Hems, so you've heard Natalie talk about Sydney Hems already today. Sydney Hems is a pre-hospital and retrieval medicine service. We speak often about our training, about our governance, and a lot about our pre-hospital work because that is the Gucci kind of work. It's the work that looks pretty. It's dangling out of the side of helicopters. It's looking after people who've had major trauma in rapid, fast incidents. But what we don't often spend our time talking about is the one that's quite applicable to what we see every day in the emergency department, and that is retrieval medicine. Okay, it is actually 60% of our missions every year. We do about 3,000 missions out of our three helicopter bases, both on helicopters, fixed wings, and also road. And road response is about, again, 60% of our work. It's not all just about helicopters, as much as we like to show that, because they are kind of cool <coughs> to look at. But it definitely, the inter-hospital missions take up vastly more than 60% of our time, however. So why is it that retrieval matters? Okay, retrieval medicine is about us taking the right team that involves a paramedic, a critical care paramedic, or a flight nurse with a medical doctor who's either a registrar or a consultant, so very senior clinicians, to the patient where they are. What we do in that case is we provide the right treatment for the patient, and that is about providing meaningful interventions, and we'll talk a little bit more about that and what that means for our medical, the unwell patients in the retrieval setting. We also make sure that they have the right timing. So we get something like 13,000 phone calls a year come through our retrieval to our retrieval service asking for a retrieval. 
Some of those occur within our 3,000 from the medical teams. Some of them occur in our regional, other regional bases, which are more of those particular patients. But many of those missions actually are to provide clinical advice or to send a flight nurse only transfer. So as well as our helicopter bases, our retrieval bases have flight nurses who provide the critical care for patients who don't need a, a doctor as part of their escort team. And those flight nurses are flight nurses and midwives providing that critical care level of transport in a tin can by themselves. Okay, they have a pilot at the front, but during the aviation part of that, they are a solo practitioner. And that's quite an important consideration to have when we talk a little bit about the distances. So we need to work out from a retrieval service point of view, which is the right mode of transport, being mindful that those different modes of transport do affect the patient's physiology as well as the time to intervention. Time is obviously particularly important when you're triaging those particular missions, whether they need to happen immediately or can be delayed, and how we go about responding our teams is of vital importance. And we also need to consider the ultimate destination for these patients for what is their definitive care. Occasionally, they do need to stop along the way for some temporising measures, but often it's just we take them directly for that definitive care. Just for a little bit of context, I've told you how far I've travelled to get here, but I do want you to have in your mind how far away, how far away things can be within New South Wales, which is the area that I work you can see that the Sydney is about here, and then we can fly anywhere in that particular area by fixed wing or road, uh, fixed wing or helicopter. We do have other bases, not just the three that are based around Sydney. Um, one, one's three and a half hours away from Sydney, but it's still, we class it as one of our Sydney bases. Um, you can see the ACT, which is a little gap in the middle there where the O is in London. That's the ACT. That's our capital territory. I know Sydney always seems to come across like the capital. It is not the capital of Australia. Canberra is, and that's in that little hole there. That was city decided that was to be there because uh, Sydney and Melbourne had a bit of an argument when we were federated in the 1900s, early 1900s, and they decided to just make a town in between the two to stop any argument political correctness at its worst in many respects. Not to say anything bad about Canberra. I lived there and did some of my medical school training there. It has a great hospital, which is designed off one built in Canberra, complete with snow eaves. Um, and it is a fantastic place to work. And then one of it, we do have a helicopter base there as well. We have done the longest helicopter mission I probably in the world in some respects from a civilian pre-hospital mission, and that was to Broken Hill. That's all the way over there on the far line, which is a long journey for me to take, so I'm not going to even walk there to show you where it is on the map, but essentially it's as far as you can go within New South Wales. It's closer to our colleagues in MedStar, but we had to do a uh, um, helicopter mission to there for someone with a sprained ankle. So again, not everything we do is particularly Gucci. Our inter-hospital transfers, again, 60% of the patients that we see, they may be medically unwell with sepsis, okay? They may have cardiac disease requiring urgent PCI and being seen in a centre that doesn't have that, and we need to move them rapidly. There are other cases where we see where the patients were called pretty much when the patient hits the door of the emergency department. In the spaces that you've seen, some of our hospitals are quite small and under-resourced. And what we're aware of is that our colleagues who work in those environments 
even though they themselves may have some of the skills, they don't have the hospital which to back them up to provide the definitive care and the meaningful interventions that their patients require. Some of them don't even have something as simple as a, a machine to be able to provide non-invasive ventilation to someone coming in with CCF, which I'm sure um, we would expect as a basic level of care in hospitals. But unfortunately, some of these environments don't have even that. There's one particular hospital I went to with a patient with sepsis and we needed to put a central line in them. We have one in our kit. I dropped it on the floor and then I've realised that this hospital doesn't have a central line itself either and there's things you need to manage there. Those patients, what happens while we're on our way, anywhere from half an hour away to five hours away, in fact, even up to eight hours away sometimes, depending on the tasking, we have a consultant who sits in an office who provides them with critical care advice in order to manage those patients the best they can on what is the worst day of those patients' life. And as you can see, the speed with which we get to those jobs really does matter for our particular patients in terms of providing the level of critical care that they need. In context for you, I've worked in London, I've done London HEMS, that was a six minutes is the average time of tasking there for pre-hospital mission. It's pretty quick, it's pretty amazing that we can get to the patients that, that rapidly there. When I came back to Australia, the first mission I did as a pre-hospital mission in Australia went for 16 hours from start to finish and you can imagine the challenges that come with those particular jobs. Now inter-hospital transfers can be from those small clinics, it can be from a cruise ship. Um, cruise ships can manage intubated and ventilated patients for several days and certainly do do that. And they have a, they all, a lot of them have hospitals within their ships down in the basement and you go in through the side door when they come back into port to bring the patients off and take them to a higher level of critical care. We also move patients who are a little bit more stable. So they're patients who need definitive care at a bigger centre. So one of our local district hospitals may have a patient who's being intubated and ventilated for days at a time, but needs to have urgent surgery that can't be provided where they are, and we move them to another centre. We also might do, at the other end of the spectrum, the patient who is on ECMO. Okay, so somebody who is intubated and ventilated in somewhere like Dubbo, which is halfway along that map, uh, occasionally Cliff works there and he certainly called me at one o'clock in the morning one day to ask me to go with our ECMO team to put a patient onto ECMO because they weren't able to be ventilated anymore in that hospital where they were with rapid decline. And so we take a team out with us who put to the meaningful intervention in the hospital where they are in order to move them back to the city <laughs> for further care. The context for this for you guys is that what I'm going to talk about today is about three critical care cases. Cases that we might discuss at our coffee and cases sessions that Natalie was talking to you about earlier, where we divide up the cases and dig a little bit deeper. But I'd like to impress upon you as hospital-based physician clinicians mainly, I know there are several pre-hospital or re retrieval clinicians here, is that what we do moving patients between hospitals really does apply to the patients that you are moving around the hospital, whether it's to the CAT scanner or to the intensive care unit or for other interventions such as MRI. 
the skills that I know from my retrieval practice really have impacted my ability to work within the hospital system and move patients from point A to point B within the hospital. And I'd like you to take away some of the messages today to think about how you would take these back to your critical care practice, whether you're working in ITU or anaesthetics or even uh, from the emergency department. Let's start with my very first retrieval. So it wasn't that long ago, I promise. Um, but I was actually working in a small district hospital. I was a couple of years out of medical school and a little bit like what happens here sometimes, a patient needed to move from the district hospital I was to the nearest, the, a nearer cardiac centre for intervention. Okay. Mrs W, she was 55, GCS 15, had been in our hospital for two days. She was currently on noradrenaline as an infusion, nicely through her central line. She had an arterial line in. She had pretty normal-ish kind of vital signs that weren't too bad. Happily chatting away, her blood tests were great. The consultant that was looking after this lady knew that I wanted to become a retrieval consultant. They knew that was the pathway that I wanted to work in. So knowing that I wanted to eventually do that, they're like, can you go in the back of the ambulance with this patient? I happily agreed, like absolutely. The days were Monday to Friday, which I'm not a fan of. Nothing exciting had happened for the previous three weeks. I'd wanted to go back and work in ED, so I thought this was a really fabulous opportunity for me to get out of the local district hospital and head, o head across in an ambulance, which is what I wanted to be doing, uh, to, treat, to treat a patient. Drop them off, get in a cab and come back to the local district hospital. Sound familiar? I imagine there's a few of you that do that not infrequently and move a patient on inotropes between locations. So what we knew was I had to cap the arterial line, couldn't possibly take that with me, but we left it all connected, just disconnected from the electronics and kept it going with me with the patient. The infusion pump, because I was going and coming back, we were okay with me taking the infusion pump. So we put it, attached it to the patient's bed, hooked it all up, set and ready to go. I had a great chat with the paramedics and we headed off down the road. Now, from this hospital to the other hospital is about 30 minutes by normal speed. We did not need to go lights and sirens. So we were chatting away and realised that we needed to have a little bit of a conversation with, as a paramedic team. So myself and paramedics, like, this is what we do. We have a chat and we chat about what might or might not happen. So the first question the paramedics asked me was, what drugs she on? like noradrenaline got that so okay it's running at 20 mics per minute okay I knew that that was great so that's what we were running at all really well fabulous the next question what if something goes wrong what might happen I didn't really know you know I was like I don't really know her blood pressure will drop or it'll go high I don't really know and I had to admit that to them then they're like, okay, don't worry, we know. We'll turn this off or we'll, t or we'll increase it or we'll decrease it. And they asked me, how do we do that? Again, slight problem. I didn't know because at that stage in my training, the only button that I actually knew on our machine was the silence alarm button. You know, that one that kind of 
every two minutes, you just keep hitting it again. That's the only button that I knew really on that machine. Every other button I tried to hit made the alarms go off, so I just kept hitting that silence alarm button. So this is this was a little bit of a problem. And this was about 10 minutes into the journey that I'm pretty sure these two paramedics who were quite experienced looked at each other and were like, why have we got this doctor with us? We could have done this without her. So luckily for the patient, although the journey was a little bit bumpy for me, um, she didn't deteriorate. And I had taken the phone number of the consultant who had asked me to go on this retrieval because we got to the next hospital and they asked me, who was this lady? What was she doing here? And they knew nothing about her. Luckily, I had pulled out my Nokia and phoned through the brick and phoned the landline of where the intensive care unit was that I'd just taken the patient from, phoned them and asked them to get him. They eventually got him. He had the conversation consultant to consultant level and we got the patient admitted into that particular hospital. What's important about this case is it was a real realisation for me about admitting what I don't know. I had to admit that I knew nothing. And a lot of those skills were things that I had thought I knew. I could have told you anything about the pharmacokinetics, the pharmacodynamics, and all of those other half-lifes and things like that about noradrenaline. Useless, absolutely useless, not things that I needed to know at that point in time in the back of an ambulance. It's helpful for me to know, and it's really useful for me to have a greater and deeper understanding of that. But actually, I think what's really important is that you need to think about the practical skills. So how do you start noradrenaline? What rate do you start it at? How much do you give? Let's go back a step even further. How do you draw it up? I bet you there's a few nurses in the room that can easily answer that question and tell you exactly how to do that. But I can imagine there's a few doctors in this room who are going, yeah, I have no idea how to draw that up. Certainly at this stage, I was one of those. Um, and now I spend my time impressing upon my ED trainees how important it is that they know how to do these basic skills, like start a drug, actually physically start it, not just write it up, not just find the protocol and read it, but actually understand how to do that. It's a pretty useful practical skill. The next practical skill to know is how do you stop it? And that's something that, again, at that point in time, I didn't really know. And to be honest, I'd by that stage done nearly a year's worth of intensive care and still had no idea because we would ask the nurses to titrate and that's all we would do. The other thing that was interesting about what to do was actually how do you physically use it and how do you continue the drug? One of the things that we do regularly, and in fact, in our early training at Sydney Hems, is we ask our doctors to swap over the infusions. So they're on the infusion in the hospital and they need to be put onto another infusion to transfer them. And then when we get to the other end, they need to go onto another infusion. Seems simple enough. But what if the strength of the inotrope that they're on is so high that that's actually what's supporting their blood pressure and they can't even manage to deal with the patient's blood pressure, can't even have the slightest little dip or they drop. And you've all seen it, haven't you? When the machine starts beeping at you and alarming and the blood pressure starts dropping and more beeps go off and you need to work out how to do that. So simple things like double pumping or not, the drugs are really important and useful skills to have. 
And I think as an educator, that's something that I have taken away from my experience as a junior doctor making this transfer is admitting what I don't know, but understanding the need to use practical skills as well as the higher level academic skills in order to make sure that not only can I be a good doctor, but actually that I can be a really effective and great clinician providing clinical things for my patient and actually managing them appropriately. Because although when I work in a hospital setting, there may be nurses around to do that for me, what I know is that they have a list of skills, a a really long list of skills that they need to do. And what we know is that sometimes it takes longer for me to go and find them, to ask them to do something, to come back, than just crack on and do it myself, other than just hit that pause alarm button. So very important to deliberately practice those skills. Think about what it means when you simulate them to check, push the buttons with the alarms going off, with the blood pressure dropping, with the sats dropping, the alarming of the ventilator at the same time, and actually take those skills and make sure that what you do is particularly practical. Nat and I were just talking over there earlier about surgical airway skills. It's all well and good to be able to use a scalpel and a finger and a bougie and a tube. But if you don't know which side of the patient you stand on, what might be in the way, it actually gets more complicated to do that within this, within the environment that you're working in. The next patient I wanted to talk to you about quickly is Mr. X. Uh, he's a big bear, intubated, ventilated, and ready to move along. He was pretty unwell, um, and we had him in the back of the aircraft for a long period of time. It took us about an hour to move him along in our journey. We were watching him and going through our observational scan. Paramedics keeping an eye on the patient and looking at the observations, the subject, i.e. the patient, and scanning along as we move. My eyes were down. Okay, I'm writing my notes and as the saturations start to drop, we get out our difficult airway, our, our drop-down airway bag because the sats are dropping, the alarms start to go off, and what we reach for is our emergency kit that's always close to hand. This kit has a bag valve mask and multiple other things. So as the sats are dropping, one of our skills that we do is start to go through our DOPES algorithm, which you all know, and I'm sure, and then we disconnect the patient from the ventilator and see what we can do to make them better. As we make our scan through this, the other thing that we do is go through another checklist. The checklist being uh, an emergency action card. We have a set of these close to hand and they're available for you online and I'll send you through the link on Twitter later. But these have this ability to tell us what to do when the patient becomes hypoxic, as our patient was, what happens when the entire alarm starts going off, as ours was, and working our way through that. This provides us with the cognitive space in order to work our way through a systematic approach. But we don't rely purely on this. We rely on our brains first and a checklist later. In aviation, what we know is that the cognitive load that occurs means that you can sometimes forget some of those basic and simple things. I just want to impress upon you in retrieval medicine and while we're traveling everywhere, we use all of the available resources to us to make sure that we don't forget things. I'm a bit of a fan of writing notes so that we don't forget things, hey Ash, and and making sure that we have things along the way to make sure that we are doing everything that we possibly can to provide the best care for our patient no matter where they are. And I think this is one of those cases where I really want you to think about What Nat was talking about earlier, what we've been talking about before, is actually that concept of having conversations with others, phoning friends, 
but also making sure that you go back and keep reviewing and finding out what happens to your patients. Because there are some that stick in your mind. And I know for me, it's the talk and die or the ones that have scratched my head, the ones where I don't know. But I also like to think about the cases where I'm pretty sure I knew what was going on. And rather than rest on my laurels and believe that that's what they have, is I actually spend some time going back over the normal, the everyday. And I think that's something that we really need to be conscious of. <coughs> One of the biggest lessons for me working in retrieval is always be prepared that something might change, that things might go wrong. Things may be protective and be okay and go exactly as you planned, but be prepared for the expected, but be super prepared for the unexpected and become responsive so that you don't get eaten by that shark. The journey really matters. What happens when you're moving patients between places is really important for you to know. We like to make sure that they're as stable as they can be before we start the transfer, but sometimes you can't get away with that. Deliberately practice your skills. Think about how to make things practical rather than always particularly academic. That said, you still need to know all the academic stuff that goes along with it to help you with the head-scratching cases as well. So the journey matters. Please remember that every moment counts when you're looking after the patients who are having the worst day of their life. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there, and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis, even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free, open access medical education. Thank you for your time.